Section two of the Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. Preliminary chapter Ursus, part three and four. Part three. In the interior of the van there were two other inscriptions. Above the box, on a whitewashed plank, a hand had written in ink as follows. The only things necessary to know. The Baron, peer of England, wears a cap with six pearls. The coronet begins with the rank of Viscount. The Viscount wears a coronet, of which the pearls are without number. The Earl, a coronet with the pearls upon points, mingled with strawberry leaves placed low between. The Marquis, one with pearls and leaves on the same level. The duke, one with strawberry leaves alone, no pearls. The royal duke, a circlet of crosses and fleur-de-lis. The prince of Wales, crowned like that of the king, but unclosed. The duke is a most high and most puissant prince. The marquis and earl, most noble and puissant lord. The viscount, noble and puissant lord. The baron, a trusty lord. The duke is his grace, the other peers their lordships. Most honourable is higher than right honourable. Lords who are peers are lords in their own right. Lords who are not peers are lords by curtsy. There are no real lords, excepting such as are peers. The House of Lords is a chamber and a court, concilium at curia, legislature and court of justice. The commons, who are the people, when ordered to the bar of the lords, humbly present themselves bareheaded before the peers, who remain covered. The commons send up their bills by forty members, who present the bill with three low bows. The lords send their bills to the commons by a mere clerk. In case of disagreement, the two houses confer in the painted chamber, the peers seated and covered, the commons standing and bareheaded. Peers go to Parliament in their coaches in file. The commons do not. Some peers go to Westminster in open four-wheeled chariots. The use of these and of coaches emblazoned with coats of arms and coronets is allowed only to peers, and forms a portion of their dignity. Barons have the same rank as bishops. To be a baron peer of England, it is necessary to be in possession of a tenure from the king per baronium integram by full barony. The full barony consists of thirteen knights' fees and one third part, each knight's fee being of the value of twenty pounds sterling which makes in all four hundred marks. The head of a barony, Caput Baroniae, is a castle disposed by inheritance, as England herself, that is to say, descending to daughters if there be no sons, and in that case going to the eldest daughter, Caeteris Filiabus Aliunde Satisfactis. Barons have the degree of Lord, in Saxon, Lawford, Dominus in High Latin, Lordus in Low Latin. The eldest and younger sons of viscounts and barons are the first esquires in the kingdom. The eldest sons of peers take precedence of knights of the garter. The younger sons do not. The eldest son of a viscount comes after all barons, and precedes all baronets. Every daughter of a peer is a lady. Other English girls are plain mistress. All judges rank below peers. The sergeant wears a lambskin tippet. The judge, one of patchwork, diminute ovario, made up of a variety of little white furs, always excepting ermine. Ermine is reserved for peers and the king. A lord never takes an oath, either to the crown or the law. 
his word suffices. He says, Upon my honour. By a law of Edward the Sixth, peers have the privilege of committing manslaughter. A peer who kills a man without premeditation is not prosecuted. The persons of peers are inviolable. A peer cannot be held in durance, save in the Tower of London. A writ of supplicavit cannot be granted against a peer. A peer sent for by the king has the right to kill one or two deer in the royal park. A peer holds in his castle a baron's court of justice. It is unworthy of a peer to walk the street in a cloak followed by two footmen. He should only show himself attended by a great train of gentlemen of his household. A peer can be immersed only by his peers, and never to any greater amount than five pounds, excepting in the case of a duke who can immerse ten. A peer may retain six aliens born, any other Englishman but four. A peer can a wine custom free, an earl eight tons. A peer is alone exempt from presenting himself before the sheriff of the circuit. A peer cannot be assessed toward the militia. When it pleases a peer, he raises a regiment and gives it to the king. Thus have done their graces the dukes of Athol, Hamilton and Northumberland. A peer can hold only of a peer. In a civil cause, he can demand adjournment of the case, if there be not at least one knight on the jury. A peer nominates his own chaplains. A baron appoints three chaplains, a viscount four, an earl and a marquis five, a duke six. A peer cannot be put to the rack, even for high treason. A peer cannot be branded on the hand. A peer is a clerk, though he knows not how to read. In law he knows. A duke has a right to a canopy, or cloth of state, in all places where the king is not present. A viscount may have one in his house. A baron has a cover of assay, which may be held under his cup while he drinks. A baroness has the right to have a train borne by a man, in the presence of a viscountess, eighty-six tables with five hundred dishes are served every day in the royal palace at each meal. If a plebeian strike a lord, his hand is cut off. A lord is very nearly a king. The king is very nearly a god. The earth is a lordship. The English address God as my lord. Opposite this writing was written a second one, in the same fashion which ran thus. Satisfaction which must suffice those who have nothing. Henry Arverkirky, Earl of Grantham, who sits in the House of Lords between the Earl of Jersey and the Earl of Greenwich, has a hundred thousand a year. To his lordship belongs the Palace of Grantham Terrace, built all of marble, and famous for what is called the Labyrinth of Passages, a curiosity which contains the Scarlet Corridor in marble of Colin, the Brown Corridor in Lumachill of Astrakhan, the White Corridor in marble of Lani, the Black Corridor in marble of Alabanda, the Grey Corridor in marble of Staremma, the Yellow Corridor in marble of Hesse, the Green Corridor in marble of the Tyrol, the Red Corridor, half cherry spotted marble of Bohemia, 
half the Marcello Cordova, the blue corridor in Turkin of Genoa, the violet in granite of Catalonia, the morning-hued corridor, vein black and white in slate of Marviedro, the pink corridor in Cipollin of the Alps, the pearl corridor in Lumarcello Moneta, and a corridor of all colors called the Courtier's Corridor in Motley. Richard Lowther, Viscount Lonsdale, owns Lowther in Westmoreland, which has a magnificent approach and a flight of entrance steps which seems to invite the ingress of kings. Richard, Earl of Scarborough, Viscount and Baron Lumley of Lumley Castle, Viscount Lumley of Waterford in Ireland, and Lord Lieutenant and Vice-Admiral of the County of Northumberland, and of Durham, both city and county, owns the double castle ward of old and new Sandbeck, where you admire a superb railing in the form of a semicircle, surrounding the basin of a matchless fountain. He has, besides, his castle of Lumley. Robert Darcy, Earl of Holderness, has his domain of Holderness, with baronial towers and large gardens laid out in French fashion, where he drives in his coach and six, preceded by two outriders, as becomes a peer of England. Charles Beauclerk, Duke of St. Albans, Earl of Burford, Baron Hedington, Grand Falconer of England, has an abode at Windsor, regal even by the side of the kings. Charles Bodville Robartus, Baron Robartus of Truro, Viscount Bodmin and Earl of Radnor, owns Wimpole in Cambridgeshire, which is as three palaces in one, having three facades, one bowed and two triangular. The approach is by an avenue of trees four deep. The most noble and most puissant Lord Philip, Baron Herbert of Cardiff, Earl of Montgomery and of Pembroke, Ross of Kendal, Parr, Fitzhugh, Marmion, St. Quentin, and Herbert of Sherland, Warden of the Stannaries in the counties of Cornwall and Devon, hereditary visitor of Jesus College, possesses the wonderful gardens at Wilton, where there are two sheaf-like fountains, finer than those of his most Christian majesty, King Louis the Fourteenth, at Versailles. Charles Somerset, Duke of Somerset, owns Somerset House on the Thames, which is equal to the Villa of Philly at Rome. On the chimney-piece are seen two porcelain vases of the dynasty of the Jeans, which are worth half a million in French money. In Yorkshire, Arthur, Lord Ingram, Viscount Irvin, has Temple Newson, which is entered under a triumphal arc and which has large wide roofs resembling Moorish terraces. Robert, Lord Ferris of Chartley, Bourchier and Longvine, has Staunton Harold in Leicestershire, of which the park is geometrically planned in the shape of a temple with a facade, and in front of the piece of water is the great church with a square belfry, which belongs to his lordship. In the country of Northampton, Charles Spencer, Earl of Sunderland, member of His Majesty's Privy Council, possesses Althorpe, at the entrance of which is a railing with four columns, surmounted by groups in marble. Lawrence Hyde, Earl of Rochester, has, in Surrey, New Park, 
rendered magnificent by its sculptured pinnacles, its circular lawn belted by trees, and its woodland, at the extremity of which is a little mountain, artistically rounded, and surmounted by a large oak, which can be seen from afar. Philip Stanhope, Earl of Chesterfield, possesses Bretby Hall in Derbyshire, with a splendid clock-tower, falconries, warrens, and very fine sheets of water, long, square, and oval, one of which is shaped like a mirror, and has two jets which throw the water to a great height. Charles Cornwallis, Baron Cornwallis of I, owns Broom Hall, a palace of the fourteenth century. The Most Noble Algernon Capel, by Count Maiden, Earl of Essex, has Cashbury in Hertfordshire, a seat which has the shape of a capital H, and which rejoices sportsmen with its abundance of game. Charles, Lord Ossulston, owns Stanley in Middlesex, approached by Italian gardens. James Cecil, Earl of Salisbury, has, seven leagues from London, Hatfield House, with its four lordly pavilions, its belfry in the centre, and its grand courtyard of black and white slabs, like that of St. Germain. This palace, which has a frontage 272 feet in length, was built in the reign of James I, by the Lord High Treasurer of England, the great-grandfather of the present Earl. To be seen there is the bed of one of the countesses of Salisbury. It is of inestimable value, and made entirely of Brazilian wood, which is a panacea against the bites of serpents, and which is called milombres, that is to say, a thousand men. On this bed is inscribed, Oni sui kimar i pense. Edward Rich, Earl of Warwick and Holland, is owner of Warwick Castle, where whole oaks are burnt in the fireplaces. In the parish of Sevenoaks, Charles Sackville, Baron Buckhurst, Baron Cranfield, Earl of Dorset and Middlesex, is owner of Nowell, which is as large as a town, and is composed of three palaces standing parallel one behind the other, like ranks of infantry. There are six covered flights of steps on the principal frontage, and a gate under a keep with four towers. Thomas Thin, Baron Thin of Warminster, and Viscount Weymouth, possesses Longleat, in which there are as many chimneys, cupolas, pinnacles, pepper-boxes, pavilions, and turrets as a chamber in France, which belongs to the king. Henry Howard, Earl of Suffolk, owns, twelve leagues from London, the palace of Audley End in Essex which in grandeur and dignity scarcely yields the palm to the escorial of the King of Spain. In Bedfordshire, Resthouse and Park, which is a whole district, enclosed by ditches, walls, woodlands, rivers, and hills, belongs to Henry, Marquis of Kent. Hampton Court, in Herefordshire, with its strong embattled keep, its gardens bounded by a piece of water which divides them from the forest, belongs to Thomas, Lord Coningsby. Grimsthorpe, in Lincolnshire, 
with its long facade intersected by turrets impaled, its park, its fish ponds, its pheasantries, its sheepfolds, its lawns, its grounds planted with rows of trees, its groves, its walks, its shrubberies, its flower beds and borders, formed in square and loathsome shape, and resembling great carpets, its race courses, and the majestic sweep for carriages to turn in at the entrance of the house, belongs to Robert, Earl Lindsay, hereditary lord of the forest of Waltham. Up Park in Sussex, a square house with two symmetrical belfried pavilions on each side of the great courtyard, belongs to the right honourable Ford, Baron Grey of Work, by Count Glendale and Earl of Tankerville. Noonan Paddocks, in Warwickshire, which has two quadrangular fish-ponds and a gabled archway with a large window of four panes, belongs to the Earl of Denby, who is also Count von Rheinfelden, in Germany. Witham Abbey, in Berkshire, with its French garden in which there are four curiously trimmed arbours, and its great embattled towers supported by two bastions, belongs to Montague, Earl of Abingdon, who also owns Rycourt, of which he is baron, and the principal door of which bears the device Virtus Ariete Fortior. William Cavendish, Duke of Devonshire, has six dwelling-places, of which Chatsworth, two-storied and of the finest order of Grecian architecture, is one. The Viscount of Kynalmiki, who is Earl of Cork in Ireland, is owner of Burlington House, Piccadilly, with its extensive gardens reaching to the fields outside London. He is also owner of Chiswick, where there are nine magnificent lodges. He also owns Londersborough, which is a new house by the side of an old palace. The Duke of Beaufort owns Chelsea, which contains two Gothic buildings and a Florentine one. He also has Badminton in Gloucestershire, a residence from which a number of avenues branch out like rays from a star. The most noble and puissant Prince Henry, Duke of Beaufort, is also Marquis and Earl of Worcester, Earl of Glamorgan, Viscount Grosmond, and Baron Herbert of Chepstow, Ragland and Gower, Baron Beaufort of Caldecott Castle, and Baron de Bottetort. John Holies, Duke of Newcastle, and Marquis of Clare, owns Bolsover, with its majestic square keeps. His also is Horton, in Nottinghamshire, where a round pyramid, made to imitate the Tower of Babel, stands in the centre of a basin of water. William, Earl of Craven, Viscount Uffington, and Baron Craven of Hampstead Marshall, owns Combe Abbey, in Warwickshire, where is to be seen the finest water jet in England, and in Berkshire two baronies, Hampstead Marshall, on the facade of which are five Gothic lanterns sunk in the wall, and Ashdown Park, which is a country seat situated at the point of intersection of crossroads in a forest. Linnaeus, Lord Clancharlie, Baron Clancharlie and Hunkerville, Marquis of Corleone in Sicily, derives his title from the castle of Clancharlie, 
built in 912 by Edward the Elder, as a defence against the Danes. Besides Hunkerville House in London, which is a palace, he has Corleone Lodge at Windsor, which is another, and eight castle wards, one at Burton-on-Trent, with a royalty on the carriage of plaster of Paris, then Grandaith Humble, Morricam, Trewoodraith, Hellcurtis, where there is a miraculous well, Fillinmore, with its turf bogs, Recalva, near the ancient city Bagniac, Wynconton, on the Molel Mountain, besides nineteen boroughs and villages with reeves, and the whole of Pennet Chase, all of which brings his lordship forty thousand pounds a year. The one hundred and seventy-two peers enjoying the dignities under James the Second possess among them altogether a revenue of one million two hundred seventy-two thousand pounds sterling a year, which is the eleventh part of the revenue of England. In the margin, opposite the last name, that of Linnaeus, Lord Clancharlie, there was a note in the handwriting of verses. Rebel in exile. Houses, lands, and chattels sequestrated. It is well. Part 4 Ursus admired Homo. One admires one's like, it is a law. To be always raging inwardly and grumbling outwardly was the normal condition of Ursus. He was the malcontent of creation. By nature he was a man ever in opposition. He took the world unkindly. He gave his satisfaction to no one and to nothing. The bee did not atone by its honey-making for its sting. A full-blown rose did not absolve the sun for yellow fever and black vomit. It is probable that in secret Ursus criticized Providence a good deal. Evidently, he would say, the devil works by spring, and the wrong that God does is having let go the trigger. He approved of none but princes, and he had his own peculiar way of expressing his approbation. One day, when James the Second made a gift to the Virgin in a Catholic chapel in Ireland of a massive gold lamp, Ursus, passing that way with Homo, who was more indifferent to such things, broke out in admiration before the crowd, and exclaimed, It is certain that the blessed virgin wants a lamp, much more than these barefooted children there require shoes. Such proofs of his loyalty, and such evidences of his respect for established powers, probably contributed in no small degree to make the magistrates tolerate his vagabond life and his low alliance with a wolf. Sometimes of an evening, through the weakness of friendship, he allowed Homo to stretch his limbs and wander at liberty about the caravan. The wolf was incapable of an abuse of confidence, and behaved in society, that is to say among men, with the discretion of a poodle. All the same, if bad-tempered officials had to be dealt with, difficulties might have arisen. So Ursus kept the honest wolf chained up as much as possible. From a political point of view, his writing about gold, not very intelligible in itself, and now become undecipherable, was but a smear, 
and gave no handle to the enemy. Even after the time of James the Second, and under the respectable reign of William and Mary, his caravan might have been seen peacefully going its rounds of the little English country towns. He travelled freely from one end of Great Britain to the other, selling his filters and vials, and sustaining, with the assistance of his wolf, his quack mummeries. And he passed with ease through the meshes of the nets which the police at that period had spread all over England, in order to sift wandering gangs, and especially to stop the progress of the Comprachicos. This was right enough. Ursus belonged to no gang. Ursus lived with Ursus, a tete-a-tete -tete into which the wolf gently thrust his nose. If Ursus could have had his way, he would have been a caribee. That being impossible, he preferred to be alone. The solitary man is a modified savage, accepted by civilization. He who wanders most is most alone, hence his continual change of place. To remain anywhere long suffocated him with a sense of being tamed. He passed his life in passing on his way. The sight of towns increased his taste for brambles, thickets, thorns and holes in the rock. His home was the forest. He did not feel himself much out of his element in the murmur of crowded streets, which is like enough to the bluster of trees. The crowd to some extent satisfies our taste for the desert. What he disliked in his van was its having a door and windows, and thus resembling a house. He would have realized his ideal had he been able to put a cave on four wheels and travel in a den. He did not smile, as we've already said, but he used to laugh, sometimes, indeed frequently, a bitter laugh. There is consent in a smile, while a laugh is often a refusal. His great business was to hate the human race. He was implacable in that hate, having made it clear that human life is a dreadful thing having observed the superposition of evils, kings on the people, war on kings, the plague on war, famine on the plague, folly on everything, having proved a certain measure of chastisement in the mere fact of existence, having recognized that death is a deliverance. When they brought him a sick man, he cured him. He had cordials and beverages to prolong the lives of the old. He put lame cripples on their legs again, and hurled his sarcasm at them. There, you are on your paws once more. May you walk long in this valley of tears. When he saw a poor man dying of hunger, he gave him all the pence he had about him, growling out, Live on, you wretch! Eat! Last a long time! It is not I who would shorten your penal servitude after which he would rub his hands and say, I do men all the harm I can. Through the little window at the back, passers-by could read on the ceiling of the van these words, written within, but visible from without, inscribed with charcoal, in big letters, Ursus, 
philosopher. End of section two.